0: Editor in chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We begin today's show with an in depth analysis of Joe Biden's speech on democracy. He believes our country is under attack from MAGA, based on the apparently violent actions of one illegal alien nudist hippie from Berkeley. The speech gives you a good sense of where the Democrats' heads are at headed into this midterm election, just a couple of days. Then we touch on a couple of other items, including Elon Musk meeting a bunch of left wing radicals and no conservatives about combating hate speech on Twitter and quite a bit more. Then we get to our guest, Senator Tom Cotton, who has a new book out called Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power. It's a scholarly work of history of Democrat foreign policy failings over the last hundred years and includes a lot of insights into how the American left has made us much less safe over time and what we need to do to course correct. It's a fascinating discussion, if I say so myself. Let's get into it. was a uh, a pretty interesting day in the news because there was a last-ditch Hail Mary effort made by a man occasionally known as Brandon, occasionally known as Dark Brandon, but yesterday he was desperate, Brandon. President Biden gave a sort of last-minute speech, essentially making the point that the Berkeley hippie attack on Paul Pelosi, which still we don't know all the details uh we don't know if he was in his underwear or if they were both in their underwear or who would what hammer or why they were kind of grabbing at each other or why the glass was broken apparently from the inside or why there's no surveillance footage available and why there's no alarm that was that went off and all these details that are missing or why this hippie from berkeley is supposed to define the maga movement None of those answers have been uh, conveyed to the public as of this time. Uh, yet President Biden, because he is such a unifier and a uniter, uh, declared that basically that guy is Trump and he is representing January the 6th and how January the 6th uh, is worse than three in a row and it happens every single day. Uh, that's it in a nutshell I'm being largely tongue in cheek but it was somewhat typical Biden in that it was providing a lot of narrative setting that was done and because most of the narrative that when is I think he'd figured that worst case scenario we talk about this for a day or two and then people move on Um, and best case scenario maybe he is able to overturn the narrative but the narratives now are all very bad They're all inflation. They're all crime, fentanyl. And political violence from the left is also a factor as well. An Illinois man, Illinois, threatened to kill the Republican gubernatorial candidate, Darren Bailey, and his family, 21-year-old Scott Lennox of Illinois, left a depraved voicemail last week for Republican gubernatorial candidate Darren Bailey, Jordan Dixon, Hamilton, writes for us at Breitbart News. He threatened to skin Bailey alive and feed his effing family to him, according to state prosecutors. Jordan Dixon, Hamilton, continues for us at Breitbart News. Lennox had a heated argument with friends at a Chicago bar on Friday over pro-Bailey advertisements that made him angry. Lennox allegedly threatened to skin Darren Bailey alive, feed his effing family to him as he is alive and screaming and effing pain. Lennox allegedly called Bailey a piece of white ass racist SHIT in the voicemail. And it goes on. Um... Mr. Lennox is so white, he is translucent. You can see through him in his mugshot. You actually can see through his face and torso into the wall. That's how light-skinned he is. We are in an era with some self-hating whites going on. So anyway, so stuff like that, of course, doesn't come up at all. Not even remotely, doesn't cross Biden's mind that there are any people like that. The only political violence that's ever taken place is Charlottesville, the worst act of racism of all time, where one white guy killed one white woman, January the 6th, where the only person who was killed was a Trump supporter killed by law enforcement, and of course, whatever happened to Paul Pelosi done by some hippie, and who knows what the circumstances were um, during that attack. We'll never know. And the media and law enforcement have already screwed up the reportage on it, suggesting that there was an underwear attack. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe there were three people. Maybe there, was, there wasn't. And the hammer attack took place after the cops arrived and the cops couldn't stop it. So that means the cops got there and they thought, well, this isn't... There's no reason to um. to use all necessary force to subdue the suspect right away. So there's clearly something going on that suggested that maybe the suspect wasn't someone who was uh, threatening Paul Pelosi's life. Not to mention, no one's fully explained the where's Nancy stuff. No one's fully explained what you could say, where's Nancy for a lot of reasons. Now, we're being told now that he was saying where's Nancy so that he could kneecap her. Okay, But. There's a lot of reasons to say, where's Nancy? And I'm not saying that I'm trying to raise some sort of conspiracy. I am trying to point out, though, that when the initial reporting was wrong, who's to say the current reporting's right? Anyway, let's hear from him. Dark, desperate Brandon. This is one of the things that, uh, again, I mention this just about every time I break down a Biden speech. I know a lot of you uh, see these as the most important shows. Some of you see these as the least important But I do think it is my solemn responsibility as national talk show host to analyze major speeches by the president of the United States, no matter who is the president. And currently right now, it is Joe Biden. So let's hear from him. Cut one. Go ahead, Mr. Zach.
1: Good evening, everyone. Just a few days ago. Good night, everybody. 30 a.m. in the morning, a man smashed the back windows and broke into the home of the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third-highest-ranking official in America. He carried in his backpack zip ties, duct tape, rope, and a hammer. As he told the police, he had come looking for Nancy Pelosi to take her hostage, to interrogate her, to threaten to break her kneecaps. But she wasn't there. Her husband, my friend Paul Pelosi was home alone. The assailant tried to take Paul hostage. He woke him up. and wanted to tie him up. The assailant ended up using a hammer to smash Paul's skull. Thankfully, by the grace of God, Paul survived. All this happened after the assault and it's just, I, it's hard to even say. It's hard to even say, after the assailant entered the home asking, <clears throat> where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol on January the 6th, when they broke windows, kicked in the doors, okay, boss. brutally attacked it's, law it's enforcement.
0: A, are, are, you smiling, are you smiling a little bit, because I know I am. It's hard to even say. It's hard to even say, well, you just announced that you, the president of the United States, are going to be giving a 20-minute speech to say exactly what's going on. Oh, it's hard to say. It's hard to even say. He's so lost. He just gets lost right away. And by the grace of God, it actually, the over-dramatization that this hippie managed to attack Paul Pelosi in such a way to inflict damage but not kill him, even though he's an 80-year-old man. And he didn't do so until the cops arrived. It just reminds you of how ridiculous it is, the narrative that's being told to us. Not to say I know the exact narrative and not to say this crazy hippie nudist um, is a good guy. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that there's something up that we don't know about. And we won't know the answer until after the election so that Biden can do stuff like this. So he can just act like, oh, this is January the 6th again. Um... Anyway, that is a that is quite a way to start. So first of all, the attack is for sure MAGA and it's just like January the sixth. That's all assumed in the first minute and fifty five seconds of the speech because this is a very unifying man who lives by the truth. And that is Biden's North Star is just whatever is factual and accurate. Cut two, go.
1: It's a lie that fueled a dangerous rise in political violence and voter intimidation over the past two years. Even before January the 6th, we saw election officials and election workers in a number of states subject to menacing calls, physical threats, even threats to their very lives. In Georgia, for example, the Republican Secretary of State and his family were subjected to death threats because he refused to break the law and give in to the defeated president's demand, just find him 11,780 votes. Just find me 11,780 votes. Election workers like Shea Moss and her mother Ruby Freeman, were harassed and threatened just because they had the courage to do their job and stand up for the truth, to stand up for our democracy. This institution, this intimidation, this violence against Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan officials just doing their jobs are the consequence of lies told for power and profit, lies of conspiracy and malice, lies repeated over and over to generate a cycle of anger, hate, vitriol, and even violence.
0: So he keeps talking about violence and the implication is it only comes from conservatives. He doesn't mention the fact that a Bernie Sanders worker tried to assassinate 11 Republicans at a congressional baseball practice and almost killed Steve Scalise in the process. They don't mention that just a few weeks ago a teenager was murdered specifically for being a Republican. A Democrat activist did this a couple of weeks ago. Last night, almost while the speech was going on, Republican General Balduck, who was debating in New Hampshire in an incredibly important race, was physically attacked by an individual outside of the debate. Now, I don't know the exact circumstances of the attack, but Baldick's, um st- spokesperson told Breitbart News that before the general went on the debate stage, so it might have literally been during the speech, he was attacked outside the building by an unknown individual. Law enforcement was quickly on the scene, dealt with it. Attempted to punch the general. And law enforcement made a quick response, shut it down. This is happening while Biden was giving a speech implying only you guys are violent. You're the only violent people. How many examples do we have to give? all the summer of love rioting. It is. And what about the history of a left-wing domestic terrorism in this country is so deep. We're going to talk to Senator Cotton later in the show about the weatherman. I mean, it's the, the, I'm not saying that there isn't some level of political violence on the right. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying it's so minimal. And to act as though there is none coming from the left is one where he's assuming all of you are stupid and all of you are incapable of reading and all of you are incapable of informing yourself and the whole implication here is that the threat to democracy are all of you and the worst thing you can do for democracy is to vote your conscience and not vote the way the literal leader of the country wants you to vote. So now we get into the democracy section, which goes on for pretty much the rest of the speech. Cut three, go.
1: In this moment, we have to confront those lies with the truth. The very future of our nation depends on it. My fellow Americans, we're facing a defining moment, an inflection point. We must, with one overwhelming unified voice, speak as a country and say there's no place, no place for voter intimidation or political violence in America, whether it's directed at Democrats or Republicans. No place, period. No place ever. I speak today near Capitol Hill, near the U.S. Capitol, the citadel of our democracy. I know there's a lot at stake in these midterm elections, from our economy, the safety of our streets, to our personal freedoms, the future of health care, social security, Medicare. It's all important. But we'll have our differences. We'll have our difference of opinion. And that's what it's supposed to be. But there's something else at stake. Democracy itself. I'm not the only one who sees it. Recent polls have shown that an overwhelming majority of Americans believe our democracy at ri- is at risk, that our democracy is under threat. They, too, see that democracy is on the ballot this year, and they're deeply concerned about it.
0: Democracy is on the ballot, and he repeats this refrain. Again, the suggestion is, vote with me, the leader of the country, and the party that controls both houses of Congress, or else you do not believe in democracy, even though we live in a republic, and he's not going to acknowledge that at all. So the most democratic thing you can do is support the current regime. Support the will of the president himself, the literal leader of the country. That's true democracy, is to do exactly what the leader says. That's not autocracy, that's democracy. And he'll insist it over and over and over again. Then he throws some shade at Donald Trump, which I enjoyed because... I have to say, um, if Trump is going to run again, and he almost certainly will, unless he gets indicted and something goes really south quickly, which, again, we could see an indictment right after the midterm, Um, we'll probably see him announce he's going to run again right after the midterm as well. But if Trump runs again, I'm rooting for Biden to be the guy. Um, I know there's an effort being made to try to push some other people forward um, George Will, the Washington Post, was writing how Biden and Harris need to back away to get some fresh blood in there. Uh, I don't think that is going to convince Biden. So, uh, but I hope it's Biden. I, I hope if, if Trump's going to run again, I hope he goes against Biden. Um, and I doubt most of you disagree when I put it that way. But let's hear the shade. Cut four, go.
1: You know, American democracy is under attack because the defeated former president, of the United States refuses to accept the results of the 2020 election. He refuses to accept the will of the people. He refuses to accept the fact that he lost. He has abused his power and put the loyalty to himself before loyalty to the Constitution. And he's made a big lie, an article of faith in the MAGA Republican Party, the minority of that party. The great irony about the two twenty election is that it's the most attacked election in our history, and yet, and yet, there's no election in our history that we can be more certain of its results. Every legal challenge that could have been brought was brought. Every recount that could have been undertaken was undertaken. Every recount confirmed the results. Wherever fact or evidence had been demanded, the big lie has been proven to be just that. A big lie.
0: Yeah, just such lame rhetoric. Oh, the big lie proved to be the big lie. Ho ho ho. Whichever speechwriter definitely went to university came up with that. You had to learn that one in college. Such brilliance. Um It was the most attacked election, in my opinion, aside from 2016, where an entire political party and the entire media establishment spent the next four years trying to nullify it and trying to act as though it was actually Vladimir Putin who rigged the election on behalf of Donald Trump. So I don't accept at all that the 220 election was the most attacked. And none of this gets acknowledged in the speech, needless to say. Because remember, Republican bad, Democrat good. You could sum up the speech: Republican bad, MAGA very bad, Trump bad, Trump violent, MAGA violent. January the sixth, every day. That's basically all he's saying. He's not giving any credence to any of the themes that we talk about on this broadcast that we on our, or that we report on a Breitbart on a regular basis, and that so many of my colleagues in conservative media. Uh, report in our news reports are accurate reports on what's happening in this country that there is tons of left wing violence. The Summer of Love uh, 2020, the Summer of Rage 2022, where there were over 100 incidents of radical leftists who attacked religious and crisis pregnancy centers because of the Roe versus Wade decision which led to a person who almost assassinated Brett Kavanaugh. The laundry list of examples I could give is incredibly long. I don't need to repeat all of them, though we will at Breitbart, I'm sure we'll do a listicle. But it is truly the main thing that's going on right now is the election denial and the big lie, is the big lie, because it's a big lie, because they lie. Not you, Biden, Biden's always telling the truth. Cut five, go.
1: The extreme MAGA element of the Republican Party, which is a minority of that party, as I said earlier, Ooh. but is this driving force. He's fair. Is trying to succeed where they failed in 2020. 2020? Suppress the right of voters and subvert the electoral system itself. Incredible. He's that means so denying your right to vote Ooh. and deciding good. whether your vote even counts. Instead of waiting until an election is over, They're starting well before it. They're starting now. They've emboldened involved in violence and intimidation of voters and election officials. It's estimated that there are more than 300 election deniers on the ballot all across America this year. We can't ignore the impact this is having on our country. It's damaging, it's corrosive, and it's destructive. And I want to be very clear. This is not about me. It's about all of us. It's about what makes America, America. It's about the durability of our democracy. Wow. For democracies are more than a form of government. They're a way of being.
0: Oh my gosh, it's just, it's like a religion. Even though we live in a republic. I, I just don't, it, it must be very frustrating for a lot of you who actually care about our constitution that he speaks as though we live in a democracy when we don't. And no one tells him this. No one says, hey, Joe, that's not great. It's very irritating to a lot of people who you might want to convince. But I'm sure their tally of 300 election deniers in the ballot in 22, I'm sorry, in the in the 220 election, that's what he calls it. Oh, no, 222 maybe. Um, I'm sure it doesn't include any of the Russian collusion hoaxters. I'm sure it doesn't include people like Stacey Abrams who never conceded her 2018 loss to Governor Kemp in the gubernatorial race. So it's only people who think that there was some sort of manipulation that went on in 2020. And just because there was no substantial, I'm not saying none, but there was no substantial illegal rigging of the 2020 election that was uncovered Uh, there is certainly legal rigging that takes place all the time all this is ignored that a lot of people in this country are deeply concerned about for example the oppression of information on tech platforms which I believe is the number one way that the left is rigging elections is that they are our town squares are controlled by people who are part of the Biden administration. Eric Schmidt, who's one of the top guys at Google, basically staffs huge wings of the Biden administration. He is a liaison between the tech world and the defense world and the Biden administration. And he was the guy who was maybe the biggest brain of all behind Google. Mark Zuckerberg spent hundreds of millions of dollars to put drop boxes in strategic places to assure Democrats win in the 220 election. Twitter censored accurate stories about Joe Biden's family in order to make sure that Biden won the 220 election. So that's the main rigging that takes place. And then we had all these cheat-by-mail rules, and he mentioned Brad Raffensberger earlier indirectly, in Georgia, who changed all these rules to make it so that all these ballots that would have been considered illegal in 2016 were legal in 2020. Now, is that legal? Can he do that? Yes, he he could do that. But a lot of us are not satisfied with that system. We're not satisfied that a moron like Brad Raffensperger could all of a sudden decide that all these ballots that wouldn't have been legal in 2016 are legal now in 2020. And lo and behold, his state went from a red state to a blue state, Georgia. So that's our main focus here. Yeah, a a few nuts want to talk about Dominion voting machines. And I'm upset that that happens, but it does happen. And it is impossible for anyone on the Democrat side to cast stones, in my opinion, after what went on between 2016 and 2020 regarding Putin and Russia. So, it's exasperating, but it's also clarifying that they've got nothing. Joe Biden's got nothing. He's got no closing argument. He's got no case for all of you to uh, vote for him and to vote for Democrats next week. His only case is that Republicans are really bad. I mean, this is arguments that you might find on The View. These are not arguments that you should be getting from President of the United States who has his uh, ability to pass legislation. When he spent his entire life building up this moment to be president, he's wanted to be president his whole life. He's finally there in his late 90s or wherever old Biden is. And now he's there and it's all about to crumble. And I don't think this helped. I don't think any of this helped one iota. And that's great. That is something I certainly enjoy. Um, I'll play probably some more clips as the show goes on. But I want to run down a couple other headlines before we go to the polls. Uh, we do some headlo- some uh, top line headlines from the Governor Baldeck debate in New Hampshire um, against Maggie Hassan. So I would recommend all of you keep that up um, or, or, or keep up on that. Other things that are out there, actor Jason Bateman is pushing Biden to use an emergency alert system to remind voters. To vote in the midterm because democracy is threatened by republicans it is so irritating that these uh, left-wing actors who are very good at acting think that they know how to run our country because they have terrible ideas they're free to say them it's a democracy after all at least i was told it's free to say that stuff um but i will say that it is irritating because now you think about this stuff this is a, a legal form of cheating And recall the big tech does this stuff where Google would alert Democrats that it's time to vote. Uh, Spotify pushes, you know, get out the vote efforts. All these big tech platforms do this because they know the lowest information voters, the people who might be inclined to stay home, are going to break towards Democrats. The people who are more informed, who understand what's going on, who are tracking the inflation data, who are tracking the immigration data, or tracking what's going on with China and fentanyl, uh, those type of people are going to vote Republican on balance. So it's those low-information people, the people who are thinking, well, maybe I won't show up this year. Those are the people who could swing an election for Democrats. That's why he wants the emergency alert system used for blatant politics. Um, but the desperation is starting to set in. Democrats are worried that many blacks and Latinos won't vote at all. And we know that some of the trends in the polls are that they're breaking towards Republicans more than ever. It's part of the problem with the Democrats and their identity politics is once they have a uh, once they have so much of the vote tied to groups, identity groups, as they do right now, then once those groups decide to be individuals and they break themselves up to a degree, then even if the Democrats win overwhelming majorities of those groups, uh, that might not be good enough. When Democrats are getting 90% of the black vote, 95% whatever it was with Obama, Uh, that's impossible to maintain and then inevitably when they can't maintain it then what does that mean then that means that it's going to wildly benefit Republicans there's not going to be much Democrats can do it's also ironic that uh, Biden's talking about the big lie on the day and I brought this up on the broadcast yesterday the White House uh, falsely claimed on social media that Biden deserves credit for bigger social security checks All right, last one for now, and then um, we're last um, in a group of things for now. And again, there's a ton to go uh, left in the news. Fed rate hikes of 0.75%. We'll talk about that with uh, John Carney later in the live show, at least. Those of you who get the show on podcast, um, we have three hours every day. So, uh, SXM app for all that, or listen live six to nine a.m. Eastern time. Um, uh, But we'll get into some of the economic news with him. A couple of media items: Uh, CNN's Jake Tapper is going to exit primetime, according to a report, after the midterms due to his poor ratings. Uh, This is a call shot by me. Um, Tapper was probably loved his life at four p.m. He's someone who is highly regarded by journalists, but not by actual Americans regular Americans don't find him smug and not compelling on TV kind of whiny kind of pompous and he but he's beloved on left-wing Twitter Um, and he got passed over by Chris Cuomo in primetime slot for CNN's 9 p.m. hour and a guy named Chris Licht who took over for Jeff Zucker at CNN after the Cuomos and Zuckers all kind of fell from grace there got kicked out Um, So he pops Tapper into that slot that Tapper missed out on a few years ago and the ratings are uh, dropping. And we're close to an election and no one's tuning in to CNN. Absolutely no one is tuning in to that network even though we're about to have an election and Tapper's supposed to be the best political guy. So they're going to have to kick him out uh, which is exactly what I suspected. Um, There's no way people are going to watch Tapper at at, at a high enough level. And I, I have to say... If Tapper wasn't so smug and unlikable, I, I would have a small bit of sympathy because this was ne- it was never going to work. And, again, I, I'm not saying that whoever is my favorite media personality would do well in that slot in CNN and IPM. I'm not saying. But I know Tapper wouldn't. And that was crystal clear when they put him in a few weeks ago and no one's tuning in. So that's going to end. And I don't know what it will do. They'll probably send him back to daytime TV on that one um but still it's fun to watch the bad guys lose but i have to say that was 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 so obvious um you have to wonder what's going to go on over at cnn if those are the moves the great chris licht is making it's the it is clearly a bad idea and it failed all right uh last one so elon musk is in charge of twitter and there is reason to believe that he is uh, going to disappoint wildly. Uh, I have stated that he's got a impractical set of tasks ahead of him. He needs to make the, the platform palatable for advertisers and defend free speech. And at this point in time, it's almost impossible. So the latest steps he's taken is that he's announced that anyone who's on a blacklist right now is not going to come off for a few weeks so he's gonna be thinking about it for a few weeks so all of you Babylon B fans all of you Donald Trump fans um, the blacklist will continue in the mascara for a, at least a while longer so now do I think he'll be able to maintain it forever he probably can't but again the first move now that he's the boss is not to uh, turn off the blacklist his first move is to think about it and who's he thinking about it with he's assembled a council people to talk about hatred on the on the platform and it includes zero conservatives it includes people from the adl it includes people from blm it includes people from all sorts of different left-wing corners of the world one person from the bush foundation but no one that is actually a right-of-center individual is included in this group So he even talked to a guy named Yoel Roth, who thinks that Trump supporters are Nazis. And this is a person that uh, Musk is counseling on hatred on the platform. He once called Trump supporters actual Nazis and called Trump a racist tangerine. And this is a person who was brought to discuss uh, hatred on the platform with Musk. No one from the MAGA world, no one from, I would say the anti-establishment conservative world in media was included in this group that musk assembled so uh, just to let you know it is um our democracy is at stake That's All i have to say Tom Cotton is my guest today, and he's got a new book out, which I read and learned quite a bit from. I was also reminded of a lot of the lowlights of recent Democrat foreign policy failings from the... Uh, Afghanistan botch withdrawal from Joe Biden to their failings on the coronavirus to their failings on China. And he gives a lot of historical background for all these things and ideological background that shows clear patterns on where the mistakes happen and where we are most vulnerable right now. So he's a deep thinker who has a lot of experience and a bright guy, needless to say. And here's the conversation with Senator Cotton. Senator, great to have you on the broadcast. I I will ask you one non-book related question because I think the timing is pretty significant. That last night we watched the President of the United States give a speech about democracy and how democracy is under attack, and he didn't cite anyone on his own side who attacks our democracy with violence, with political violence. Um, you write in the book about Chessa Bodine, who is a, ha, had four parents, literally, for, who were uh, left-wing radical activists, Weatherman included, and it's as though only the right has ever had political violence, according to our current president. Uh, I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills sometimes, though I guess at this point with Biden, I would expect nothing different from him, but uh, you would almost chuckle if it wasn't so significant, but having just written about some of this stuff, uh, give me your thoughts on that, on the speech.
2: Yeah, Alex, thanks for having me on to talk about Only the Strong. You know, the the speech last night I I thought was interesting um, because the president kept talking about democracy being on the ballot. Uh, What's actually on the ballot are Democrats, and the American people are about to repudiate the Democrats and their ideological agenda. Uh, You know, they talk a lot about threats to democracy. I think they really worry about threats from democracy, because they know the voters are about to deliver a very harsh verdict on the failures of two years of unified democratic control in Washington. And as you say, Alex, Joe Biden and these Democrats always seem to overlook left-wing violence like BLM uh, rioters and Antifa uh, goons rampaging in our streets two years ago, or left-wing agitators protesting in direct violation of federal law outside Supreme Court justices' homes this summer with Merrick Garland taking no action against them, which culminated with a left-wing hitman traveling across the country to try to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh. And as I write in Only the Strong, you had Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, one of the original Soros prosecutors, who had not one, but two sets of terrorist parents associated with the uh, (laughs) Weatherman terrorists of the 1960s and 1970s. Now, ordinarily, Alex, I, I wouldn't criticize someone for their parents. We don't get to choose our parents. or don't even get to choose Uh, When our terrorist parents get sent to jail, the fact that they leave us with their best friends who are fellow terrorists, who are, by the way, Bernadine Dorn uh, and Bill Ayers. You might have heard of them before with Barack Obama as their early patrons in Chicago. But Chesa Boudin went on in their footsteps to work for Hugo Chavez and try to undermine law and order in San Francisco. One reason why you saw that terrible attack on Paul Pelosi is that San Francisco has declared itself a sanctuary city where illegal aliens like his assailant can uh, roam free, and they refuse to enforce basic law and order there. Yet you never hear these things from Democrats like Joe Biden.
0: It's true. And it's also interesting to hear him obsess over democracy. I know that a lot of the underpinnings of your your work here in this book are referring to our founding documents and our founding fathers and our founding principles. Uh, Biden is obsessed with, quote unquote, democracy. Of course, he wants you all to vote exactly as he does, which is the irony's not lost on us here. Um, but we are in a constitutional republic and he never talks about it that way I just find it incredibly odd and it's very triggering to the Patriot audience.
2: It really is um, You know, it's also ironic to me that he gave that speech from Washington DC's main train station uh, Which is ground zero for homelessness in Washington DC I think they may have had to yes, up right. all of the homeless in their tents in front of Union Station and furthermore anyone who's ever taken that train as I know uh, as I have, know that there used to be a Starbucks right next to the train stop so you could grab a cup of coffee and maybe a muffin for your morning commute. They had to close that store because uh, Washington, D.C. and Union Station had so much homelessness and so much crime. They closed a lot of other stores in that station. That's more telling as, as a reflection on the failures of the Democrats' agenda than anything Joe Biden said last night. <laughs>
0: So the central premise of only the strong seems to be that the Democrats always blame America first, and they don't really seem to like this country, and that seems to make us weaker. That is manifested in our foreign policy and uh, makes our country much more vulnerable. And Republicans, for whatever faults they might have, do ultimately want to conserve our founding principles, and are, are uh, and and want to preserve our heroes and the key elements of our nat our, of our national myth. Um, and I, I want you to speak to this broader point about why you wrote the book and um, kind of assess my summary of the thesis.
2: Sure, Alex. The, what ails America today is not just an accident. It's not Joe Biden's bad luck that he happened to be in office when we have 13 percent inflation or gas at five or even six dollars a gallon in some states. The sense of decline most Americans have um, is, again, not an accident. It's not unintentional. It's declined by design. The progressive left, going back 100 years, is at best ambivalent about America. Many are openly critical or even hostile to America, but they're all, of course, hostile to the sources of American power, a strong military, a strong, prosperous, growing economy, um, American energy production and independence, sovereign borders and sovereign freedom of action in the world, standing up for friends and standing up against adversaries like china and you see it starting with woodrow wilson the first president to openly repudiate our founding you know openly critical of the declaration and the constitution a way that no president would be today on down through the ages that every time the progressive uh democrat takes the white house they're pursuing policies that undermine the sources of American power. And it's only gotten worse with Bill Clinton and especially Barack Obama, the most ideological man to be president since Wilson and Barack Obama's understudy, Joe Biden.
0: So Wilson is really the super villain of the book and yet I find that the left doesn't cite him often. They don't seem to celebrate him. It seems like there's more people who celebrate Karl Marx than Woodrow Wilson. But you do lay it out as though his ideology really is the basis for the modern progressive woke left uh, for to a at least on the foreign policy front. Um, Why do you think he is so influential but still not cited that much.
2: Well, for one, it's a bit of an embarrassment to the progressive movement that their really their founder and their political patron saint was a virulent racist. Um, so uh, he's been canceled uh-huh. by much of the progressive left. But, you know, Alex, they can take his name off the buildings, but they can't take his ideas out of the buildings or out of their mm-hmm. movements. Well, a, a fundamental premise of the progressive movement was that our founders had lived in a time-bound era. They couldn't see over the horizon that scientific and technological progress was coming, that Darwin was gonna reorient the scientific world. They had this foolish idea that we had God-given natural rights, that we had a fixed human nature that never changed. The progressives knew better. They knew that everything was historically and time-bound, that man's nature would change, that we would therefore improve morally, not just scientifically and technologically, and that you could perfect human nature and ultimately therefore perfect society. Um, You could uh, uh, achieve utopia or return to the garden. You didn't need foolish things like the separation of powers and checks and balances and federalism. That's why Wilson is really the patron saint also of the vast administrative state we have today, where supposedly neutral, nonpartisan scientific experts could carefully calibrate all of the various conflicts or the tensions or the needs of our society as opposed to the people's elected representatives doing so with those critical constitutional curbs on them. Extended to the the world, when progressivism meets the world in World War I, you see Woodrow Wilson declaring war not to defend America's interests, not to say avenge the Americans who were sank uh, and killed on the Lusitania, or uh, to defend our borders because Germany had started conspiring with Mexico to seize the American Southwest, but rather on defense of abstractions, on the rights and freedoms of small nations to choose their own course in the world or to have you know, world peace through the League of Nations, this vast globe-spanning network. It's um, very different from what the founders would have done. They would have probably declared war on Germany, but they would have done so specifically in America's interests. And you still see that trend today in liberal internationalism, they're willing to use American power to redeem America's flawed, sinful nature, as long as it doesn't advance our interests, as long right. as it's on behalf of someone else. You know, if you were to ask progressive internationalists who talk about you know, going to war, deploying troops, what's in it for us, their answer would be nothing. And they would think that that's a virtue that shows that you're not selfish, that you're not nationalist. Uh, but of course, once you repudiate the American founding, it's a very short trip to repudiating America itself That's what happened in the 60s and the 70s with the Blame America First Democrats, with Chesa Boudin's parents and their cohorts. They think America is so flawed, so deeply sinful that we simply can't redeem ourselves, that we should do nothing other than pull on our horns and atone for our sins and conciliate with communists. People like Bernie Sanders would fit that mold. You know. Most yeah. Americans know Bernie Sanders as an angry old man who wants to introduce socialism to America. Well, 40 years ago, it was very different. He was an angry young man who wanted to yes. introduce socialism to America. And as the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, he actually traveled to Nicaragua to celebrate uh, Soviet puppet Daniel Ortega and to condemn America. Um, so nothing is really new under the sun with these progressives. It's just that you see these, t- these two Uh, different kinds of approaches to the world, using American power only on behalf of other people or not using it at all because we're so flawed and sinful. The common premise is America is a flawed, sinful place. We shouldn't be the leader of the free world as we were under Ronald Reagan. We shouldn't be strong and competent and assertive of our own interests.
0: Yeah. And as you remind us in the book, Sanders honeymooned in in, in Russia, which is just a a surreal thing that is conveniently people don't bring up very often. It seems like uh, something that is really chilling that you identify is that we're not even it's not even that we have some self-hatred and that we work against America's interests. We even work against the interests of our allies, and it feels like this is something that could put us on the path to ruin because we need to be. Good allies, we need to make good on our promises to our allies if we want to continue to be a superpower. But again, I think latent to the text here is that we're not trying to be a superpower. We're trying to uh, erode our power uh, internationally. But uh, I found this to be I found that to be a very depressing reality to contemplate, that we are not good allies any longer.
2: Well, you, you see this consistently with modern democratic presidents. Um, they abandon our friends and they conciliate and appease our adversaries. And as I borrow from the famous Roman general uh, Sulla, who wrote for his own epitaph on his gravestone, no friend has done me a favor nor enemy an injury that I have not repaid in full. Now, yeah. progressives might uh, you know, roll their eyes at that or get their hackles up, say that it's very uncouth and unsophisticated, but it is a simple fact that the world is a dangerous place. It's not a church picnic. Uh, we have to take our friends and our allies where we can find them. It would be nice if every ally we had was a representative democracy that shared a religious and linguistic and cultural uh, background with our nation, countries like Great Britain and Israel. Or, or even if they didn't share that background, at least we're robust representative democracies, countries like South Korea and Japan. But let's not kid ourselves, they're not. And we have to take our friends where we find them. And even when they don't share our political system or our cultural and social sensibilities, if they're pro-American, then we should support them and work with them. And if they're anti-American, we shouldn't. And you see this most notably with uh, Barack Obama and with the Middle East. So, for instance, his response to the Arab Spring has been considered in, inconsistent or naive or incompetent or ad hoc. Yes. Not at all. Uh, Barack Don't believe Barack Obama was naive or incompetent. He was ruthless in pursuit uh, of his ideological agenda to undermine American power. So he overthrew Hosni Mubarak the pro-American strongman in Egypt. He militarily intervened to topple Muammar Gaddafi, who was a, a strange megalomaniac dictator who had a lot of American blood on his hands. But by 2011, he had come in from the cold. He had been scared straight, and he was a de facto ally. Yet then he stood by idly while Bashar al-Assad uh, butchered his own people, even as we had many more interests in Syria than we did in Libya. So what's the unifying theme? If you were pro-American in the Arab Spring, you got toppled. If you were anti-American and pro-Iran, you, were, uh, you stayed in office. And you see it today with Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden and the Democrats continually condemning Saudi Arabia um, and saying that we might not even defend them if Iran is attacking their oil fields. What do they think that's gonna do to our uh, interest here at home? What do they think that signal sends to all of our partners and allies around the world if Joe Biden and the Democrats are saying, you know, we're going to condemn and ostracize Saudi Arabia and we're not going to support them if they get attacked by our moral enemy, yet we're still going to sit around negotiating with Iran. While, oh, by the way, we don't say anything or take any action to support hundreds of thousands of Iranians protesting in the streets against the murderous regime there.
0: Yeah, perfect example. I, I want to go back to Afghanistan because you reminded me in the book that there were Americans stranded behind Taliban lines in Arkansan in particular, uh, and you were able to get this Arkansan out. And I think this started, uh, I, I think this, however, though, this had a, there's a sense of foreboding here because it just showed how the Biden policy here was going to fail catastrophically, and I think it might even be worse than, uh, than, than the, I, I was even able to glean from afar. Uh, tell me about this story and why you think this is maybe the most significant blunder of the Biden administration so far.
2: So uh, it wasn't just a humiliating moment for America, probably the most humiliating since the fall of Saigon when we had to airlift people in helicopters off of our embassy there which, by the way, Joe Biden also had a hand in as a young senator cutting off military aid to South Vietnamese government so Ho Chi Minh could run uh, through uh, all of South Vietnam. Um, It was a strategic disaster of the first order, what a Chinese communist propaganda outlet called the Afghan effect. It's not a surprise that Vladimir Putin began marshalling forces on Ukraine's border shortly after our humiliation in Afghanistan. And and I knew, I could see, uh, I was receiving the same intelligence briefings that Joe Biden did that the Taliban were gaining in strength last spring and summer and the Afghan government was wobbly, especially once Joe Biden withdrew even civilian contractor support to the Afghan Air Force so they could support their own troops on the ground without us having to support it with our Air Force. So when he said in July that you are not going to see something like we saw in Saigon, and there's not going to be a rapid collapse, I wasn't really sure what he was talking about. But... Once Kabul actually fell, and I learned that I had an Arkansan stuck behind enemy lines, it only then became clear the scale of the fiasco, the incompetence that had gone into this. You know, the military and our intelligence agencies had done a pretty good job of planning to get their own people out, our intelligence officers and, the, and our troops. The State Department is responsible in these situations for evacuating noncombatants, and they had totally fallen down on the job, so many of you... Your listeners may remember we had thousands and thousands of Americans stuck behind enemy lines. And, you know, I, I kind of turned my office into a, a makeshift emergency triage uh, um, office so we could take calls and emails from people behind enemy lines. I was fortunate that one of my young aides was a reservist mobilized at the airport in Kabul so she could provide information to us and vice versa a lot of other senate offices did the same you had a lot of veterans and generous philanthropists working as hard as they could to get americans out before we left uh with our final troops from the kabul airport but it's just a sad commentary that that senators and veterans and philanthropists had to support these efforts as opposed to the administration which is tasked with this responsibility to protect american citizens
0: uh one other thing in the book that i think is really significant that you bring up which is i thought i hadn't uh, had before which is how bad treaties are they're so often not honored and they represent things that i don't even think are productive and it feels like our treaty culture where i think a lot of the bureaucratic globalist left uh, has uh, this uh, ideal of what a treaty could do and it just never turns into anything productive. It seems like, I mean, obviously there's some notable exceptions, uh, but when did you come to this? And give me some examples.
2: Um, Well, I write in the book that, uh, you know, these globalist progressives try to undermine American sovereignty in many ways, you know, tying us down to globalist institutions like the United Nations or the International Criminal Court or opening our borders and opening our markets uh, without any regard to trade practices that are unfair to our workers. But one example of it is one-sided treaties. Um, So for instance, the the New START treaty, which is the major arms control treaty we still have with Russia, uh, Obama passed in 2010. It required us to reduce our nuclear forces, while Russia was still building up to those caps, obviously one-sided. Or treaties that I mentioned in, in Only the Strong as well, like the Intermediate range nuclear forces treaty. Ronald Reagan negotiated that. That's an example of a good treaty because it asymmetrically favored us. That was a time when we had short range, medium range cruise and ballistic missiles in Europe that were nuclear capable, which greatly, greatly frightened uh, Soviet Russians because of their short travel time. They could hold Moscow and Western Russian military targets at risk. We didn't face the same risk, because unless they were going to put missiles back in Cuba, they couldn't reach us with those missiles. So Ronald Reagan was able to eliminate an entire category of weapons. However, by the time I got into Congress, that treaty was obsolete not because the Soviet Union no longer existed, but because Russia was building those very missiles. Even the Obama administration admitted that they were building intermediate range missiles, yet they refused to take action. And, and when President Trump finally decided to withdraw from that treaty, you had, of course, Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden condemning him from destabilizing actions. Think about it, a, a treaty that was so one-sided that it only covered two nations, and one nation was cheating on it, and therefore we were the only nation on earth voluntarily restraining ourselves from building these kind of missiles at a time when China was building them by the thousands to threaten not only Taiwan but also our troops in places like South Korea and Japan. Yet for the Democrats, all that matters is the fact of a treaty, not what the treaty actually does to our enemies or to the United States.
0: And you say it right that it is all about undermining our sovereignty and it just seems like trying to put power on uh, unelected bureaucratic experts is the ideal goal for so many on the globalist left right now. And I think that traverses nations, but that does speak to so many of the themes in the book about how it just feels like uh, many of the people who are have guided our foreign policy left of center over the last hundred years see that as the ideal the ideal is these unelected globalist bureaucratic bodies controlling americans america's sovereignty and not the people not the will of the people and certainly not people who put america first
2: yeah it's it's the flip side alex of what woodrow Wilson, the progressives tried to create here at home you have the vast administrative state with deep staters like lois Lerner persecuting tea party groups or lisa page and and, um Peter Stroke and Ben Klein Smith fabricating evidence in the so called Russia collusion hoax to harass their political opponents. Uh, that, this idea that we should not have elected, accountable officials making choices for our country, but rather supposedly nonpartisan, scientific, neutral experts. They hate to be called bureaucrats. Uh, yeah, Tony, no. Fauci prob- pr- Tony Fauci is probably. The, the best example uh, possible sure. of what Woodrow Wilson had in mind, and look how that worked for us. Well, internationally, yeah. it's the idea that rather than having strong sovereign nations acting in concert with one another to defend their freedom and protect their interests, you should have unelectable, unaccountable bureaucrats, professors and lawyers and journalists at places like the International Criminal, Criminal Court or Amnesty International defining what is and is not appropriate in the world. Uh, and I, I go into great detail uh, in Only the Strong about how Democrats consistently try to outsource decision making to these unelected, unaccountable officials. I mean, there's a reason why the progressive left in particular sings out, singles out America and Israel for particular condemnation. And that reason is because we are the two nations, two democratic nations that use our military forces every single day. America has troops around the world to protect our interests and to reassure our allies and deter our adversaries. Israel obviously uses its military to protect its citizens from terrorist attacks or attacks from Hezbollah or Syrian forces or Iranian forces or what have you. And that is a ongoing daily repudiation of their globalist fantasy that the world can be governed by a bunch of bureaucrats and lawyers and professors and sitting in The
0: Hague. Senator Tom Cotton again is my guest Republican from Arkansas Only the Strong is his new book out now Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power It is a scholarly work of history but also has um, some recommendations on where we can go from here uh, Senator, I have a lot more that I want to get to with you so maybe we'll do a part two but there's two questions i got to ask uh, before I let you run uh, First of all, you connected something that I think is pretty brilliant and I had not thought of things this way that it seems like it, I, 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 I'll, I'll phrase as a question. Do you believe Russia would have invaded Ukraine if Joe Biden hadn't so bungled the Afghanistan withdrawal two years ago?
2: Um, I, I don't know. He, he might have because leading up to the Afghanistan withdrawal was a series of concessions that projected weakness towards Vladimir Putin, extending that nuclear arms control treaty without any concessions, which Donald Trump refused to do. Allowing Russia to proceed with the Nord Stream two pipeline, which Donald Trump refused to do, turning the other cheek in large part to things like the colonial pipeline hack, giving Vladimir Putin the stage of a big international summit, the first time he was building up troops on Ukraine's border. So that the fiasco in Afghanistan was kind of the icing on the cake in which Joe Biden had spent his first year in office tempting and enticing Vladimir Putin to do what he always wanted to do which is go for the jugular in ukraine and as i point out to my democratic friends in the senate although it drives them crazy vladimir putin has a tendency to invade ukraine when democrats are presidents but not when a republican is president
0: and then the last one i want to get to today and you have a deep history of the coronavirus and uh, the where you were the first to call for a travel ban from china which you did in breitbart by the way which uh is, is kind of cool historically speaking though Horrible what happened thereafter, um, but in your recommendations, you conclude the book with recommendations on where we go from here, and we're not going to get to all of them here, but uh, most of them are China-focused. You, you I believe, correctly see China is our greatest geopolitical foe right now. Uh, talk to us about where we begin, because we're, we're going backwards in this regard right now under President yeah, Biden.
2: The final part of the book is kind of a roadmap to how to restore American power, and especially how to beat China. Uh, all all roads lead uh, to the conflict between the United States and communist China. And if we don't want to live in a world where China calls the shots, we have to take that threat urgently. Um, so we have to rebuild our military power. We especially have to invest in the kinds of weapons that would deter China from invading Taiwan or attacking our interests in the Western Pacific. We need to begin to decouple critical parts of our economy, like our high-tech sector, our medical sector, from the Chinese economy. We need to recognize the kind of influence that China exerts in our country through multinational corporations and Hollywood and the media and universities, and we need to be ready for a long struggle uh, against an adversary unlike any our our countries really ever faced. China is much more powerful than Soviet Russia ever was because their economy is so much larger and so much more entangled with ours.
0: Senator Tom Cotton, I really appreciate it and uh, come back and let's talk some more about Only the Strong, which is out now and everyone should pick it up.
2: Thank you very much, Alex.
0: is today's broadcast thanks to producer Zach Jones and Greg Eben as well as Robert Marlowe who helps me pick topics and to all of you who've told 10,000 friends and family members about the broadcast can't thank you enough and we'll talk to you tomorrow